trust is a willingness to be vulnerable to another person, organization's actions, and their intentions. So I, I trust when someone else has the ability to do something I can't do for myself. So trust is, starts with a, a, a power imbalance uh, between the person who has a need and the organization or individual can fulfill that need. And because we're talking about power, that's why motives come into the question, intentions very quickly, uh, which is what are you going to do with this greater power that you have over me? And that's why we care so much about why people do what they do, why organizations do what they do. Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change Podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and develop organizations with a remarkably healthy culture that can positively impact all of its stakeholders. Every other Thursday, we drop hour-long conversations with world-leading researchers and experts on culture, ethics, change, and leadership. My name is Tobias Sturluson, and I'm your host and the co-founder of Art Management. To trust fundamentally means to make yourself vulnerable to the actions of others. When we buy a product or a service, we trust that it will work as promised and will not harm us. When we take a job, we trust that a company will treat us fairly. When we invest in a company, we trust that they will give us truthful information to make investment decisions. As members of the public, we need to trust that a company will not use its powers to cause undue damage to us. These words really hit me after reading The Power of Trust by Professor Sandra Sucher and Shalene Gupta. When discussing the importance of a healthy culture, people often mention the dismal state of employee engagement as a key KPI. And of course, employee engagement is crucial. However, I believe there's something perhaps even more fundamental at stake, trust. Trust is business critical. You can't operate effectively without trust, whether you're a country, a business, or a nonprofit organization. And I believe that almost every leader, and, or at least I hope, that almost every leader in every organization wants to be trusted and trustworthy. However, too many people have found that they cannot trust their leaders, their governments, or their organizations. I've several times witnessed the damage when organizations that once had high trust cultures got caught up in leadership misconduct, how the leadership struggles to move forward, and how the organization loses its ability to focus on the future. Yet, the good news is that though trust is hard to build and easy to lose, you can rebuild it. The process, however, as you will hear in this conversation, will require us to lead with courageous humility, acknowledge vulnerability, own our responsibility, and address inconsistencies. As we'll learn, being able to trust your leader's integrity and ethicality can have a significant impact on profitability. In this episode of the Leading Transformational Change podcast, I had the great pleasure of interviewing Sandra Sutcher. Sandra is an internationally recognized trust researcher, professor of management at Harvard Business School, and co-author of The Power of Trust, How Companies Build It, Lose It, and Regain It. 
She was a business executive for 20 years before joining Harvard, and her research has been featured in the Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Quartz, Business Insider, CNBC, and so on. So without further ado, let's jump into this important and really insightful conversation about trust, how we build it, and how we can regain it with Sandra Sucher. Sandra, it's really a privilege to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much. I was actually really excited to join you. So thank you for asking. I must say that I've, I was so excited when you said yes and reading up a bit on your, your work and your fantastic book, The Power of Trust, that you co-wrote with Shalene Gupta. Uh, it, it, there's, there's just a lot in there that really spoke deeply to me, and I, I've been sharing it with uh, uh, several leaders and HR professionals uh, over the last few days, and I really felt that it resonated with them as well. So, so I'm super excited about this conversation and just digging into this topic with you. And when I read your definition of trust, as you write about that it is making ourselves vulnerable to the actions of others and how as employees and consumers, we are vulnerable to the motives and actions of all the organizations that we are in a relationship with. And I think for many of us, I think that's a question that is so much uh, on the agenda right now. I mean, we see in this moment, the, the, of course, the positive, but also a lot of the destructive impact of organizations that we thought had our best in mind. And it, you talk about that it's not only to the point that we can feel disappointed, but even to the point of feeling betrayed. And I think this is so much the foundation of why it's so important for us to build more like ethical and healthy cultures and also as leaders that and and when i when i talk to leaders i think this is true for most leaders that this is who you want to be you want to be somebody who is trusted and you want to build an organization that can be trusted and yet i think this perspective is so much missing in the organizational conversation why do you think that is if i'm inside an organization uh, I, I take the, what would I say, it's kind of an inside-out view. So I have my view of the world, uh, and uh, trust, on the other hand, is a judgment that other people make of us. So it's very much an outside-in perspective. Uh, and the key sort of dimension here is, is kind of whose views it question. I, I think of it as like the eye of the beholder question. Uh, trust is subjective. You know, there's no universal standard by which everyone judges the same action done by a company. Uh, it's not infinite in its variety. There are patterns. Uh, but, but I think that the reason it doesn't show up is that in organizations, and I've been an executive, as you know, for a couple of decades myself, uh, what, what you tend to think about is, well, this is how I see the world. But trust requires you to start with the perspective of how the, how the other person judges you. Uh, and that's actually hard to do. Uh, you know, what, if you're practical, you say, well, do I look at my employee engagement surveys? You know, uh, do I look at my customer feedback in terms of sales and complaints and things like that? Uh, but if you care about being trusted, you have to start with privileging the perspective of the person who you're asking to trust you. You also bring something up in your book that I think is so important that you say that 
it's easy to think that trust building is only kind of the same as reputation management, but you make the case that it's not. What, what is the difference? Trust is an outcome of actions that you take. And reputation management uh, is a, what would I say, it's a sliver of that. Uh, you know, because part of the outcome of my actions is that I gain a certain reputation for good or ill in the marketplace. Uh, but what's different uh, about trust in this regard uh, is that it's not really uh, just a question of my reputation. It's a much deeper judgment that people have about how I operate as a business in the world. Uh, so they're judging my competence. Am I good at what I say I'm going to do? Uh, they're judging my motives, uh, which is, you know, in addition to serving my own interests, you know, do I care about other people's interests as well? Uh, they care about how I actually go about doing business. They care about whether I'm being fair to the people who rely on me. Uh, and, and they also, of course, judge any business as well they should on its impact. Uh, you know, then that's all the way from climate change to effect on communities. Uh, and, and so, so to call that all of that reputation, uh, I think kind of underplays the importance of this judgment that people are making. Uh, so that's one distinction that I would draw is just it's, it's a sliver of it. But when we think about that and think of the tools that people deploy to make that happen, they never get to this really deeper level of how the organization functions and how the people who are relying on um, actually respond to that. I think this aspect of like relying and uh, and trust that I'd like to to walk, take time to reflect. And and one of the the places that I that I love to walk in is is a graveyard. And and as you walk around in the graveyard, you like and and, and in Sweden and my city we have this kind of beautiful graveyards that are like like parks basically and you walk around and and, and I enjoy kind of reading the inscriptions on on the on the tombs and of course if you look at very old tombs you see this uh like the name and then you see a work title I mean somebody was a banker or something like that because that's what life looked like uh, a, a couple of decades ago but Today, of course, we change jobs all the time. But what I still think is so true is that our lives are so intertwined with the organizations that either we are consumers of or that we are uh, employees of or, or whatever our relationship is. And I think of a company like Facebook, for example, where I th think that so many of us thought, okay, we have this relationship, which is basically you create this platform for me to connect with others and then over these last years we realized that the relationship looked very different than what perhaps we were expecting it to and suddenly we realized that maybe someone is selling our information or or whatever that is or it's used for political uh purposes and 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 so on what's 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 kind of your reflection of what happens in situations like that I think it comes down to this moment of trust uh, where we were relying on Facebook to be a certain kind of thing, right? A certain kind of platform. Uh, and when they act in ways that go against that fundamental brand promise, if you will, about what you can expect from them, then we start to lose trust in them. And, and so, you know, you should think about the fact that any organization makes a promise 
uh, about who it is and how it operates. Uh, when people uh, gain trust, it's because they like all of that. And when they lose trust, it's because, well, hold on a minute. You know, that's not actually what I thought the deal was. Uh, and so that's why it was so profoundly dismaying to see this powerful platform uh, use the information that it uniquely had access to uh, in order to provide some influence points for a political organization during elections. Uh, so so I, I, I think that that's a question of sort of the impact, right? And that's when we're judging on impact, which is, I don't care what you say, Facebook, about what you do. What I see is that you sold my data. And, and that's the conclusion that you draw. It's why impact is always part of the assessment that you make on trust, uh, because we don't just care about what organizations say. We care about what the, the actual effect their actions have on us and others. When I think about that Facebook example, I, I think that perhaps part of our view of the relationship was an assumption. It was not necessarily that we've read uh, this is the agreement or that they've even said that it was like that. We just assumed something. And I think that assumption, and I, I will talk to uh, Professor Mary Gentilly on, on this podcast. And in, in our conversation, she talked about these, I don't remember the term she used, if it's like super values or something that are things that like most of us, we just assume. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that a company has written on their website that these are our values, but these are things that we assume, for example, that we should be treated fairly or honesty, for example, is another example. So I'm just thinking in our relationship as organizations with customers, with employees, what are some of those things that people assume that is not necessarily something we uh, have said like or communicated that this is who we are and this is what we stand for. But what do people assume from us in terms uh, to to kind of give us their trust? In that regard, I, I and Mary's work is fantastic. You know, I've known her for a long time, uh, and uh, she's a great person. Uh, so one way to think about what she said: some people use a term "moral minimum." which is some baseline expectation. Another way to think of it is legitimate expectations, right? And either way, what you're framing is these stand on such an accepted ground of the way that people should treat each other, the way organizations should treat others, uh, that it shouldn't, it's not written into any kind of things that we say because it is, in fact, an expectation. Uh, and I think that in ethical terms, when you think of it as a legitimate expectation, then you start to put an obligation on the organization itself to live up to that, even if it didn't actually say out loud, well, I intend to do this or not do that. Uh, and, and I think that this question of, would you sell the information uh, that I gave you uh, isn't, is in that domain of a moral minimum. It's like nowhere in the relationship uh, was there any indication that you were going to monetize my information uh, in a way that benefits you as a corporation and possibly does some harm. Uh, and, and so I, I feel like that's the betrayal in this case. Uh, and it's at that very fundamental level of, uh, again, are they being fair, which I would argue is, of course, not because they didn't tell anyone they were going to do this. Uh, and what are their motives? Their motives are to make money off of information you've given them. And that was not something actually that was part of the deal, right? 
So I, I think that that's how the betrayal starts to work is when there are those kind of uh, violations of assumptions that people make. And, and, you know, organizations have a right to test those uh, and to say, well, hold on a minute, you know, maybe I should be allowed to do that. But then if we think logically about how organizations interact with employees or customers, they then have a duty of disclosure. They then have the obligation to tell some people, well, guess what? This is either a new policy or something I will be doing uh, in order to allow people to make a choice as to whether or not they will continue to engage. And so none of that occurred in the Facebook situation. That's so, so helpful. And I, I want to back up a little bit and, and just ask a very fundamental question. What is trust? Trust is a, is a willingness to be vulnerable uh, to another person, organization's actions and their intentions. So I, I trust uh, when someone else has the ability to do something I can't do for myself. So trust is, starts with a, a, a power imbalance uh, between the person who has a need and the organization or individual can fulfill that need. Uh, and because we're talking about power, that's why motives come into the question, intentions very quickly, uh, which is what are you going to do with this greater power that you have over me? Uh, and that's why we care so much about why people do what they do, why organizations do what they do. Uh, so trust is a, another term that uh, philosopher John Rawls uses is you can think about it as consent. You know, so the question is sort of what legitimizes power? Uh, and, you know, historically it was either God uh, or the state, uh, you know, in a monarchy where you sort of say these are the people who get to run us. Uh, that, you know, in the 18th century changed. Uh, and became kind of the consent of the governed, that that is actually the fundamental basis on which uh, power is legitimate. Uh, and, and so th that is the domain within which organizations operate. That's not just a political context, that's an organizational context too. So we're always, uh, people are consenting to use our services and we are giving our consent. Uh, we can withdraw that, which is what happens with trust. We stop buying. We tell people it's lousy, all of that. Uh, and, and so so I think that, you know, the, the vulnerability, power, uh, and then consent are ways to start to think about how this actually operates. I mean, in so many of these relationships, we don't necessarily have that much of a choice. And I th think, in, and especially when we are in a in a place of... Yeah, we, we're, where we are in a place of need. I mean, let's let's say somebody who has, uh, if we think of a, from a Swedish context, uh, so, so somebody who struggles with a disease and and, and you uh, and you're not able to work and and you need to get support from the government. I mean, in that in that relationship, there's you don't have a choice. You can't choose to like go somewhere else. Uh, it's you're totally dependent on that other uh actor to actually act on your behalf yeah that's correct and businesses some businesses operate as if they were governments so facebook you know some of the major technical technological companies uh, have so much access to things that we need and rely on uh, that we don't actually have a choice in a way uh, in many cases, as to whether or not to use their services. And, and so that puts even greater pressure on questions of legitimacy and trust uh, and earning the consent of people and communicating fairly uh, and behaving fairly. 
uh, because, in fact, they have so much power uh, over us and the things that we need. As leaders, I think we want to build organizations and we want to lead in a way that we can be proud of. So we don't we don't go into it kind of to, to breach people's trust. But in your book, you also bring up a number of examples of why trust matters for financial performance. And what is perhaps some of the most compelling data that you've encountered? One of the studies that I, I think is very powerful, it's cited uh, over and over again, is a study that uh, was first published in 2002. It was a, a very practical study looking at uh, the employees of two Holiday Inn chains. Right? So Holiday Inn hotels in the United States and Canada, they looked at uh, 6,500 of these people. Uh, and the, the research question there was, um, what, on what basis did they actually feel that their managers were doing a good job? And they were particularly interested uh, in the question of whether managers had behavioral integrity. Uh, so this was a question of, you know, do your actions match your word? Do you keep your promises uh, and things like that? And so they, they interviewed, you know, 6,500 people uh, over a period of time. And what they found was that of all the dimensions of managerial behavior that they looked at, uh, trust in manager was the only one that really had a very profound impact on profits. So if you were on a five-point scale in this survey, an eighth of a point increase uh, in trust in your manager uh, would yield $250,000 additional profit per hotel. So that's, you know, a correlation. They, uh, and so it was quite stunning uh, that of all the dimensions that they looked at, they looked at other kinds of things, communication skills and other things you would hope a good manager would do. Uh, it was this dimension of trust and in particular behavioral integrity uh, that made a difference as to how much money you make in your hotel. So, so that's a very kind of particular example uh, on the plus side. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can look at the examples on the other side uh, if you want to. So, you know, 500,000 people delisted their Uber accounts at one point in New York because they were so uh, angry at actions that Uber had taken. Uh, so trust works on the upside uh, and it works on the downside, right? It hurts you financially either way. I think... Most of us understand quite instinctively that for a client to trust us, uh, we need to be competent. We need to deliver a great product or service. And and could you talk a little bit about the, the role of competence, but also why it isn't enough? And, and you take a great example of Uber in your, your book on kind of why, why competence isn't enough. And it really spoke to me because I uh, have have in many ways, a very bad view of Uber. And at the same time, I use it when I, when I need to, to, to get somewhere. I, I normally open the, the Uber app and see if I can uh, get a cab there because the service, it, it, it works. Yeah, so my uh, co-author, Shalene Gupta, always refers to that as Uber angst. Uh, you know, it is this sort of moral qualm that we have about doing business with a business that we don't think is such a good business, right? Uh, and it actually is a great example of exactly how trust works. So everyone uses Uber, uh, and I'll talk a minute about Lyft, um, uh, which is the US equivalent uh, and alternative, uh, it, because it actually does what is so much better than any other system of transportation, of getting you from one place to the next. 
Uh, and there were two failed attempts to actually set something up like Uber before Uber. Uh, and they just figured out how it was to manage supply and demand, about how it was to actually create a seamless service uh, where no money changes hands uh, and you get to go where you need to go. Uh, and it's remarkably efficient. Uh, and so it's a great example of the power of competence in a business. And so uh, trust is always the foundation of trust in a business is competence. If you can't do the thing that you do better than someone else can do it, or at least as good, uh, there's no reason for someone to trust you, right? At least in a for-profit business kind of a context. Uh, but with Uber, what happened was that uh, people heard stories, and I'm not sure exactly which one sort of convinced you that they weren't such a great company. Uh, one very telling example uh, that related to their motives uh, was a, an accident. Uh, in 2013, an Uber driver uh, ran into a family in San Francisco, and they killed their six-year-old daughter, uh, injured the mother and brother. Uh, the family sued, and Uber argued that at the time of the accident, the driver was not an Uber employee. Uh, because he didn't have an Uber passenger on board uh, and he hadn't yet accepted his next ride. So the family sues. We're in the United States where everyone sues everyone else all the time. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, in court, this is the argument that they made. Uh, so whose interest is Uber protecting at this moment? It's absolutely not the driver who's a contract worker uh, who actually was not insured because they were actually in a position of being a contract worker and certainly not the family, they the family that they harmed. So, you know, when we go to judge an organization based on its motives, we can't get inside the head of the organization. So we do the next best thing, uh, which we judge them on whose interests we see them serving. And so a situation like this, people step back and they go, oh, okay, I get it. You know, it's, it's very convenient. But boy, I hope nothing bad ever happens because given a choice between me and Uber, Uber's going to win, right? Uh, and Uber, you know, there's also this dimension of fair means, meaning how you go about uh, what you do. And so an example of that is uh, Uber started charging uh, for how much time it took someone to get into a car. Uh, and so when you step back and say, well, who would that affect it disproportionately affects people who are in some way disabled, right? So someone's got a walker, someone has to get from a third floor down, someone has a, you know, a, a wheelchair they need to store into, uh, into the, the hood of a car, the back of a car. Uh, and so people were up in arms about this. It started in 2016, then they withdrew it for a while, and now it's back in force. And this is an example of simply not being fair, right? This is disproportionate impact uh, on people who have no choice but to take longer to get into a car. So that's a kind of an abuse of power of the sort that we were talking about before. Uber has the power to make these policies and to enforce them. So though that's why competence itself is not enough, right? Because if you do things like this, people are going to go, well, I'd like your business, but you know what? If there's like a great, incredible alternative, I'm going to go with them because of all these other ways that you have of operating. And I... When I when I think about that example, I'm I'm thinking about another example that I instead then kind of look at favorably, which is Airbnb. So you have, I mean, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a different different business, but but of course, it's it's a similar type of service. But you have a company that 
in my uh, in 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 kind of what I've seen, and I've I've been having a, a number of conversations with uh, Rob Chestnut, who was the chief ethics officer there, and that they've made decisions that have shown different motives, uh, where where they were in in situations where they kind of could have chosen not to take on liability, they chose to take it on instead, and that that has kind of built a very different sense of trust, where, where I think about Airbnb as very competent. I mean, their service works fantastic, but I also think of them as more ethical. Yeah, that is correct. And they uh, had a couple of incidents early on uh, where there was, you know, a, a house that got trashed really terribly. Uh, and that put them on a journey to try to figure out, well, what should we offer people whose homes have been damaged? Uh, and to think, you know, which is inherent in their business model, that sometimes that will happen. Uh, and they ended up changing their policy, increasing the amount of money that people have access to. Uh, and so Airbnb is a very good example of a company that thinks about trust. Uh, and and I'll, I'll just say that there is a, a side of trust. You can think about it as sort of trust is possibility. So trust allows you to do things that would not be possible if trust weren't in the room. So when you step back and think about Airbnb, okay, okay so I'm going to open my home up to total strangers who are going to come and stay for a week, or I'm going to go stay someplace else. The amount of trust that's required, unspoken agreements that have to happen between people in order to think that this is going to be safe on either side, that I'm going to get what I'm asked for, what I'm paying for, that's a great example of trust is possibility. Trust is, well, why not? Why couldn't we do this if we could build a system that actually supported trusting behavior? Uh, and so, you know, it's very important when you talk about trust because so much of it is downside management. There's this huge opportunity side of it uh, that I think is really important for people to be focusing on both inside and outside organizations. I mean, you know, we, we kind of touched on it a, a number of times, but something that just struck me when reading your book is the idea of the importance of motives and that it's not only what we do that matters but why we do it and, and it it makes me think about uh kind of ancient words from from saint paul kind of saying that you can give like away all your money away but if you don't have love it amounts to nothing and uh, and it, it it's something that i've that i've seen a lot in organizations and and even in the idea of kind of thinking of 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 the heart or the inner workings of or inner life of an organization that so many times we think that what happens there what what is happens kind of behind closed doors that it doesn't actually have so much of an impact and i think my in my experience i've seen that it does i mean the the motives the kind of what is said between those internal conversations is it actually matters a lot and and you've seen that in your research as well so, so i would just love to 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 understand what is the kind of difference between self-interest and an honest desire to serve and and why does that matter the first thing i'd say is that uh self-interest gets a kind of a bad rap right so there's nothing wrong with self-interest in fact if we didn't have it we probably wouldn't exist as a species uh and uh and so to me in business the question always is in addition to your own self-interest whose interest do you take into account? So I, I never drop that out of the equation. Now, there can be an excessive amount of self-regard 
Uh, and there are, there's in fact empirical literature on leadership uh, that says that the longer you're, that simply by being in a leadership role, that you begin to lose your connection to other people. It's very powerful psychological research that talks about the effects of dopamine on your system, uh, which basically encourages a kind of a personal reward orientation. Uh, and, what it, and, and that will interfere with your ability to take other people's reality into account. So this is a kind of a known fault line. So when you're picturing those meetings that you just said, the leaders who can understand that they'll be tempted to only pursue their own self-interest, but who nonetheless continue to take other people's interests to account, that's the, that's the gold standard. That's what you're looking to do, which is not to pretend that it's not something that also affects you. That's not realistic. Uh, but to really say, how can I keep that other half of my brain open uh, to take in the reality, the needs of the other person, uh, and for many people to reach some kind of sincere motivation that has to do with a, a desire to serve. And I think that is a very powerful motivation for many people. And it's one of the reasons why people look to be influential and to have power is to actually have the ability to help other people. Uh, and so I, I think there is a positive aspect of this that can be uh, that can be tapped into. But it's also important to understand that the terrain is fraught for leaders because they have their brains working on the one hand, all the stuff that got them into a leadership role is all this pro-social other things, orientation to other people. The stuff that then happens is that they start caring about their own rewards. Uh, and, and then you have to just sort of say that I, I live with a battle within, right? And I'm going to have to be managing that psychologically. And, and that's one of, to me, one of the most interesting parts of the research was to understand the inner psychology of what it's like to lead and how you get to that place of helping those things in balance. You talk in your book about the example of the pharma company McNeil, how they betray the public's trust and, and really in a lack of a quality culture. Could you describe that example? This was, so McNeil is a division of Johnson and Johnson. Uh, and uh, Johnson and Johnson at that point uh, had, uh, a long history of having done a very good job, of, uh, quite a good job at certain points in time of managing crises in the organization. Uh, the particular example is when they had a number of tainted uh, products. These were things like Tylenol drugs that actually the packaging was making people ill uh, and people were starting to get reports. And what had happened was that uh, this is a company that had had a continual round of acquisitions uh, and as part of the acquisition, they needed to actually find some additional costs to justify what it was that they had done. Uh, and the way that they found the cost, among others, is to disable their quality organization. And they got lots of pushback from people inside the organization that said that this is not a good idea. Uh, but what then happened was that when this started to occur, there was like no process in the system for people to pick up on this, try to understand what to do with it, where did it happen and all of that. Uh, and so, you know, there are ways in which business arrangements like M&A activity uh, put pressure. And if you promise, as they appeared to do in that case, unrealistic synergies uh, from the acquisition, uh, you just have to be extremely careful about what you've structurally set up 
uh, in terms of pressures on the system. So that's the analysis that, you know, that we wrote about this as a case, a colleague of mine, uh, Clayton Rose, uh, because it was so fascinating that this was a company that used to be really good at this stuff, and then they kind of lost their way. And, and I think that's a really important lesson for all organizations, which is trust kind of waxes and wanes. It, it, you know, there are times when you're good at it and times when you're less good at it. Uh, and, you know, the work that I do, I try to help people manage both sides of that. You know, when it's good, how can we manage the upside? How can we really sort of benefit from it? Uh, and when things have gone wrong, you know, how can we recover lost trust? What's it like to do that? And, you know, there are definitely examples of that. And so, uh, but it's understanding that this is something that goes on in both or in both ways in most organizations. When we talk about that example, I mean, I think about Volkswagen, the emission scandal. I think about Boeing 737 MAX and, and the, the, the terrible crashes uh, where hundreds of people lost their lives. And I think about the Ford Pinto uh, where, where uh, the uh, kind of, which was designed in a way that that made it really susceptible to burn in in, in the case of a of a crash from from behind. And and I'm just thinking about these examples where we kind of put speed, or that we we have to produce this quickly, or we have to keep the cost down, or whatever, where we kind of put that above quality and safety and and we kind of create this cultural pressure where everyone knows and i, I recently had a conversation with with uh, denny who was actually working in the recall department at ford during the the pinto uh crisis so, so that, that's really fascinating and, and who's written a lot he's a professor today but but anyway so so when we think about these examples i'm just thinking that in so many ways we do them because we think that they're going to be I mean, of course, we, we don't set out to do something that will become an ethical problem and that will cause harm, but we create this kind of cultural pressure that that leads to outcomes because we want to see quick results or whatever. And at the end of it, we lose and, and, and destroy trust. And and how could we be better kind of at, at seeing that at the onset to, to make better decisions? Some of that is a question of who is at the table when those decisions are being made. So Boeing, for example, uh, its board didn't have a single person, a single director uh, who had experience in the industry or with safety and product issues. And so when Boeing went to make the decision, which it did to not redesign its cockpit uh, because it wanted to actually save money in the design process, uh, and when it made the decision to actually try to claim on the outside uh, that the people didn't need training on what it was that they had built because they wanted to save their customers the costs of training, expensive training in a simulator. Uh, so part of the question you should always ask in an organization is who has the capacity and the understanding of the actual essential elements of the nature of the business that we're in uh, as we're making those decisions. And I, you know, to me in particular, the Boeing situation is a profound case of organizational dysfunction uh, over many years of changing an engineering culture to something that became quite financially oriented. Uh, and it's also a remarkable failing of board governance. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think it's very important when you think about sort of whose hand is on the tiller 
uh, to be thinking about who has the both the moral and legal obligation to steer the organization in the way that's safe. And these big ticket decisions, those are being made quite often at the board level. Uh, in the case of you know the Johnson and Johnson, the McNeil case we were talking about, that too is a question of what, what's a realistic amount of synergy to claim in an M and A deal, right? So I want to kind of take it up a level because I to sort of who is making the decision and what those people should be thinking about, could be thinking about, uh, and a board that is more trust oriented would be thinking about how will other people view this. Is this going to have negative effects on the customers eventually? Uh, and you try to do some imagination thinking about where will this lead us? And that's a kind of a skill that you need to have both at the senior leadership team level and at the board level of supervising them. That is such an important point. And I, I just kind of really want to, want to stop at that and, and really speak to our listeners because I think that when we think about values-driven leadership and, and we've... Uh, I've had conversations here on the podcast with Anton Brunsell and about her work of of um, ethical fading, where kind of how how so easily our values kind of disappear out the window when we're actually making decisions because we're framing in them in in the wrong way, or we say this is just a cost benefit analysis or whatever. And I think about the perspective of how are we intentional about making sure that trust is at the table, that we have the conversations in terms of our decisions and that we have then the right people around the table to make those decisions where trust is an important valuable, not just reputation, not just risk, but but trust. And uh, so, so I, I think just just wanted to, to kind of really uh, bring bring uh, forth that point, because I think that was so, so important. And I I wanted to talk to you about how to rebuild trust. And uh, I, I've had the, the, the privilege of working with several organizations that have gone through highly publicized scandals and caused by misconduct, most of the time by senior leaders. And in all, in all cases, the leaders chose or were forced to resign. And, but yet, uh, with the new leadership, I've, I've seen time and time again how important it has been that they actually took responsibility, even though it wasn't, they weren't ultimately responsible, but they, as representatives of the organization, took responsibility and apologized. And I call this leading with courageous humility, and I think it's totally fundamental to, to building a healthy culture. But... Uh, I heard a fascinating interview with you around apologies and and what is important parts of an apology, what components they should include, and so on, and why they are so important. And and I also, in in my experience, so many times as leaders, it feels like we're so afraid of actually apologizing. And if we do it, we easily do it. Oh, if someone got hurt, I'm sorry and we don't actually really address the issue. Can you speak to that? What is, why is it important and what does it need to, what are the important components? Uh, apologizing is a life skill, right? <laughs> it's part of the research that I, I feel like I, I, it's useful to tell people about because uh, as the advertisement on TV says, you should do this at home. So, you know, what I'm about to tell you 
doesn't just affect uh, your life at work. Uh, there are some things, uh, there's a whole strand of research in the trust literature around apologizing. Uh, and this is because trust recovery is a huge issue and people try to understand it. So the, the three uh, elements of a good apology, there are six that have been identified. Three of them are especially powerful. Uh, the first is that you have to acknowledge the harm that you've created and say you're sorry for it. So, and the acknowledgement is what people are looking for and the apology as well. And so what happens is uh, that when people apologize, when leaders apologize, they, they kind of, in a funny way, kind of say, but don't say that they're sorry, right? You know, sometimes they'll move into the passive voice, mistakes were made. Uh, other times it just has such an air of insincerity to it that you kind of wonder, does the person understand what it is that they've done? Uh, and I think that in order to apologize well, you actually have to come to terms yourself as a leader with the harm you've created. And it may not be your harm. Uh, so there's a wonderful uh, woman, Sarah Al-Sahemi, who I've uh, written a case about. Uh, she's a leader in Saudi Arabia, and uh, she inherited a really dysfunctional organization. She had this wonderful line. She said, it's not my fault, but it is my problem. I thought that for anyone who inherits a situation, that that kind of an attitude is really important. So the first thing, though, from the standpoint of the listener, uh, is for you to prepare yourself to actually have thought about the harm you created, made it real enough so that when you say those things, you actually are thinking and feeling something. Uh, and you're not just actually kind of parroting some phrase that someone from your investor relations or PR department gave you. Uh, so the first step is to acknowledge the harm your company has made, apologize for it. Uh, the second is an explanation of what went wrong. This is important to trust building uh, because people on the outside want to know that you know what caused the problem. If you can't describe, here's how we got to this problem, then I wouldn't have any particular confidence that you're going to be able to fix the thing. Uh, and so a decent explanation, uh, it can't be defensive, you know, of course, uh, but it has to be very straightforward. You know, the Oscar situation at PwC, you know, people honestly were on their cell phones uh, on the stage and they ended up giving the wrong card to someone. They just weren't paying attention. Now, this was uh, under the wrapper. This is what they found. Uh, but at least they said we moved into the process by which we made sure that we gave people the right card. And so you need to have an explanation for what went wrong to convince people you can fix it. Uh, and then the third step uh, is you do need to make some kind of an offer of repair, right? So, and this is the, okay, I acknowledge I did something wrong. I'm really sorry for it. Here's how that came about. And here's what I'm going to do. And this kind of takes one of two forms, sometimes both. One is here's what I'm going to do for you personally. Right? So I was at a restaurant the other night. It took them an hour to bring our main courses. And I fully expected that when I got my bill, that they would have taken 20% off of it. Or that they would have paid for our wine. Uh, or that they would have paid for our dessert. Right? Something that is like an offer of repair which is I know, and they came over to apologize multiple times as we were waiting. So it's not like they didn't know. Uh, and I think most people in those kind of interaction 
uh, would have some expectation or hope at least that that's in. So that's the offer of repair. There's also, I'm going to fix the process and here's how I'm going to fix it. Right, so that's the kind of institutional response, which is I found that we had a step in the process that really didn't help or whatever. Uh, and so these are the three steps. You acknowledge harm, you apologize for it, you give a good explanation, uh, and then you make an offer of repair. Uh, and if you do that, you are far more likely uh, to be accepted as having made good on what you did. Uh, people do distinguish after that uh, as to whether it's an error of competence or one of integrity. So not all you know, betrayals are the same. Uh, incompetence is easier to forgive uh, than integrity. So with competence, we sort of assume, well, everyone has a bad day. Yeah, and so I, I get that. Uh, if it's an integrity issue, something where I feel like you deliberately created the conditions within which trust was betrayed, uh, where I'm far more likely to think that that actually characterizes you as a leader and your organization in general, right? Because it's hard to imagine someone kind of only doing that once. Uh, and so there is a, a psychology that says that we split in sort of how we do this. I mean, I've worked with one organization where we actually spent many, many hours, and this took actually months because it was an issue of integrity for them to really get to the point of the harm that was done, why it was done. And I mean, this this was hard, hard work. I've never really seen an organization being ready to do that work in the way that they did. I, I hope to see it again. Uh, but, but ultimately they could actually come out and actually give an apology, uh, which were, was really meaningful. And, and that we also really saw made a difference in term of, uh, terms of rebuilding trust. So, so I think that's like one, one of those aspects that it's so easy for us to think that people should just get over it. And, and uh, I mean, I had that experience just recently. We saw in doing a culture analysis that there were harm done in the, in the past, a number of years ago with a bit destructive leadership. And we said to the new leadership, we think you should address this. And they felt, I mean, people should get over it. But the CEO decided to do it anyway, and, and as she, she did, and actually very, very simply, but just kind of talked about the harm, said it was not okay that we, the organization was silent and didn't address it. People came up with tears in their eyes and, and, and just thanking her for addressing it. And, and so, so I just think it's, and I think another aspect is of course the fear of liability. And, and you talked about that as well, that we so easily kind of give it over. I, I talked to Frank Blake, uh, who was the CEO at the Home Depot and, and where they had this kind of breach where millions of credit card information was stolen. And he said that when he went out and apologized, they said he refused to listen to the lawyers. Yeah, that last point is actually really important uh, because uh, it's, it's perfectly legitimate for a company to be concerned about its legal liability. Uh, it's more a question of what do you prioritize? Because you will make a different kind of a statement if that's what your concern is than if your concern is to regain trust. And so I, I think that that's where you just have to sort of say, and, and business always has, you know, the obligation, in fact, to use its expert uh, advice uh, in a way that meets its strategic goals. 
And so if my strategic goal at this moment is to really double down on the fact I need to rebuild trust, I'm going to do some things that are different than if I'm really concerned that this is just going to be a liability, it's going to eat my corporation whole. And I, you know, I, uh, and so as a trust scholar, I obviously uh, would suggest that the path to actually not having a lot of lawsuits is to actually try to restore lost trust. Uh, and that that actually is a safer, more risk managed approach than thinking that I'm somehow going to bluff my way through this or not pay attention to it. Wow. And so in, in terms of you talk about kind of the short term and the long term work of rebuilding trust, and what is some of the long term work that needs to be done? And, and maybe you can connect it with with an example that that's really spoken to you in terms of being a great example of an organization that actually managed to rebuild trust, because I know many of our listeners there, they are dealing with that. It's, it was actually how I first became uh, exposed to this area. I'd always thought about this in general terms. And then I was in Japan uh, in uh, 2017 doing research at a company called Recruit Holdings. Uh, and I was there to actually study their processes, their HR processes, which were quite interesting. Uh, and what I found at the time was that they had uh, survived a scandal that was so large that the prime minister of Japan and his entire cabinet had to resign as a part of it. And this defied any notion as a business person that I'd ever had about whether or not you could recover lost trust. Because at the time I was there with them, they had 50,000 employees globally. They were making about $20 billion in sales. Uh, and so obviously this notion that you can never regain lost trust seemed to not be true. And the fact that you re could regain it to the level that they did was also quite surprising. Uh, and most of what they ended up doing, they, they, so if you go on their website, you can find the story of the scandal still. And this happened in the late 1980s. Uh, and it was such a profound moment for the corporation as to who they are. They tell you the story of what they did, what they, and in particular, how they tried to mobilize the organization after that. Uh, and, uh, and then the steps that they took were mostly in this long-term area because it turned out that their customers, uh, this was a, a shares for insider trading kind of a scandal, shares for favors that the CEO actually had offered some around 159 people in the public domain, uh, shares for a subsidiary that was about to be listed so that they could make more money by buying it cheaply. Uh, and so it got uncovered uh, by accident by some reporters by the major uh, newspaper in Japan, ended up being then covered for six months almost daily. And, and so to this point, when you go, if you go to Tokyo and you stop someone on the street and you say recruit, uh, they will turn back to you, they'll say scandal. Uh, it's still in, in textbooks uh, in the company. It was so profound an influence on the economy and how people thought about this. Uh, it turned out that the customers thought, well, I guess the guy just wasn't a good guy, right? And so he ends up going to jail and other people actually lose their jobs. And so accountability, people had to pay the price. But the, the people that they had a problem with were their employees because it used to be a kind of a badge of honor to work in this company. And now it was a badge of shame. Their kids were being bullied on, you know, at playgrounds. Uh, and, and so there was a lot of shaming that was going on if you were affiliated with this company. And what they set out to do was to create an organization uh, that the theory is that it's a good place to be from. 
So, so this is Japan where lifetime employment uh, is the, was the norm. It's no, no longer quite as prominent. Uh, and what they said was that they knew they couldn't guarantee lifetime employment because they were recovering from a scandal. Uh, but what they could guarantee was that people actually would have such a profound developmental uh, experience working in the firm that when they left, they would be much better off. Uh, and so they created new paths for people that had to do with what kinds of things they call it will, can, must, uh, which is what is it that they want to work on in the next six months over the next three years. Uh, and they get them to focus on what skills they want to develop in order for their career. They move them around. Uh, into assignments that actually allow them to do that. They give them enormous amounts of autonomy uh, in order to make this happen as a developmental exercise. Uh, and so they purposely force people to keep coming up and grow their skills. Uh, and so at the end of that, they even offer retirement bonuses after six and a half years so that they have a continual stream of people who want to be there and people who are supported to leave. So it's an entirely different model of how it is that you manage a workforce, but it all came out of this scandal uh, and the notion that you had to build a workforce that felt that they were being taken care of at a time when they were under so much pressure. So there's a, an enormous amount of really important work that can go on inside organizations to step back and say, what is it that we need to actually do inside the organization as well as with our customers and others on the outside? And a lot of that long-term work is going to be in structure issues and the kinds of program I'm describing. That is so, so helpful. And I, I think that is also bringing hope to, to people who might not, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about, for example, HR professionals or ethics professionals in organizations where, yeah, maybe there are even certain things that, that they feel needs to happen in, in the senior level, but that they don't control and to see that there are actually things that they still can do. Because I think most of the time, the hardest hit is like just in, in your, your example, it's the employees, it's the people who have kind of invested their life and and into that organization who believed in the mis mission who felt proud to work there and suddenly uh they they can't anymore or, or it's, it's and and i think that's kind of a, that's a grieving process and and then but that there is actually work that can be done to make them feel that they are valued and that like you said that this is a place the best place to be from they, thank you so so much for sharing that and, and unfortunately I, I would just love to to sit and and talk to you for two more hours but i'm i'm just uh know know that we're we're out of time but but sandra thank you so much for for taking the time for this conversation and how can people connect with you and follow your work so i have an author website so the easiest way to find me is just go to harvard business school uh, and look for my faculty profile uh, you'll see that there. You'll see any uh, kind of news items about me and interviews and things that I do. You'll see my work. Uh, and then I also have an author website, which I've listed, and it's listed directly. Uh, and the, that website talks more specifically about the trust work, some work that I've done in moral leadership, uh, and also actually has an entire page devoted to my current passion, which is K-drama, uh, which is Korean TV serials. Uh, and so uh, so you'll see kind of uh, me and, and my attempt to sort of reach out to other people. Again, really want to recommend everyone to pick up The Power of Trust by Sandra and uh, Shalene Gupta. It's, it's a really, really powerful, insightful and practical read. So thank you, Sandra. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really means the world to us if you would share, rate, and review it on iTunes. We're super grateful for all the five-star reviews and generous comments that we received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free PDF on leadingtransformationalchange.com. See you in two weeks.